This episode is very special to the team of Cry Like a Boy and a very sad one. If you listen to our show, you might be surprised not to hear the voice of our usual host, Hopatso Bodibe. Unfortunately, just after finishing season one, we learned that our dear collaborator Hopatso has died due to COVID. Hopatso was a prominent journalist and advocate for gender equality in South Africa. He spent 10 years as a specialist health reporter covering mostly HIV and AIDS and managed communications for the Men Engage, an alliance of organizations working on positive masculinities and ending harmful practices in the region. Those who knew him well also describe him as a loyal friend. Our team is deeply saddened by his death. Welcome to a special conversational spin-off season of Cry Like a Boy, a Euronews original series and podcast that explores how the pressure to be a man can harm families and societies. This is episode one. If you have already listened to our show, you know that for a whole year, we traveled across the African continent to meet the men who questioned their masculinity and defy centuries-old stereotypes. Now, as we are approaching the end of the season, we realized that we had a lot more to say on the subject of masculinity. So we decided to invite three special guests for a spin-off season. Today, we will speak to one of them. Adam Adjian is a former UN registrar of the International Criminal Tribunal for the Tutsi Genocide of Rwanda. In 2012, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon appointed him as UN Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide. We have already spoken a lot about the trauma of war in Liberia, but conflict is a global issue. Today, we will ask Adama about the impact such a violent act as genocide could have on men, women, or male victims of rape. Now, before we start, I would like to take the cat out of the bag and say that Adama is not just a world-leading expert on genocide, but also a family member and a daily inspiration to me. Who would have thought that today we would be working together? I'm very delighted to have you with us, Adama, and I know how generally busy you are and how difficult it was to organize this recording. Yes. To start, let's look at how an act such as genocide impacts a whole community. How are both men and women impacted when they go through gender-based violence during wars? Adama, you have worked on the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda, and you were based in Arusha. So what were the main crimes that you registered during your mandate there? Were some of these violent crimes gender-based as well? Well, the first and uh, most crime committed in Rwanda was the genocide of the Tutsis. 100 days of madness, during which between 250,000 to 500,000 people were actually raped. And of course, those rapes were committed 
not only by men, but also by women. And we all have still in memory the conviction of the only woman indicted by the ICTR, Pauline Nyamorishoku, and who was convicted among all the crimes of the crimes of rape. We also remember the uh, landmark historical decision the Akai, in the Akai's case. It was the first time in history that uh, uh, rape committed under certain circumstances was equated to uh, genocide. Of course, uh, in addition to the time of genocide, uh, during those hundred days, starting from uh, April and in June 1994, uh, crimes against humanity also were committed as well as war crimes. And uh, this is, I think, uh, one of the uh, most horrible uh, crime ever committed uh, in the soil of uh, Africa, ever committed around the world. Within 100 days, around 1 million people were exterminated simply because of their identity. It is very important, uh, as you are doing, to pay attention to the gender-based violence crimes committed during the genocide. And I should say that uh, what is important is that even beyond the Akayesu case, what we noticed was that uh, men and women were slowly killed, hacked down by machetes, and the sexual gender-based violence took place on a large scale, as I indicated earlier. Women and girls were methodically uh, gang raped and mutilated. Wow, that's a huge number that you're giving us on rape. You also mentioned that it wasn't only perpetrated by men, but also perpetrated by women. So how were these women involved in this? At the end of the day, a victim of rape can be of any gender, and so can the perpetrator. So uh, men too, of course, have been victims of rape during these genocides, although facts stand that women have been more extremely subjected to such crimes. And this is, of course, the case, not only in conflict, but as well in peacetime. So uh, I, I think here in the context of Rwanda, what it is very important to also understand the motives for the rape of male victims, the perpetrators, they rape not only, of course, uh, Tutsi women, but also they rape uh, Hutu women who were close to Tutsis, friends and married with Tutsis. So, uh, and about the men, it has not been documented as much as we did, of course, in the context of uh, the rape taking place uh, against, uh, committed against women. And so that's why I think it is important in this uh, context uh, to really highlight the importance of paying attention uh, to uh, investigating and prosecuting also uh, male who were victims of rape. So basically, um, the men who were victims of rape in this context, they were raped because they were Tutsis, because they were male Tutsis, is that right? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Because at the end of the day, what was horrible was even going to the extent like we have witnessed in Srebrenica of making sure that at the end of the day, those women who are pregnant will carry with them 
Serbian babies. But in the case of the men in Rwanda, of course, what happened was that those men were, were uh, Tutsis were raped by uh, these uh, in Tehamwe, by this militia. Uh, it, it was uh, also beyond, uh, beyond the fact that they were being humiliated. There was also uh, this clear intent uh, to contribute in uh, uh, humiliating, uh, humanizing uh, those, uh, those men. And uh, that is why we should more and more uh, think about what is uh, the lessons, what is the legacy to, to, to take from the genocide of Rwanda. And I should uh, admit that thanks to both the International Criminal Tribunal of Rwanda, both and the International Criminal for the former Yugoslavia, the issue of rape uh, was taken more seriously at the international level. Because rape was considered uh, not only as a weapon uh, during war, but also rape, as I say, committed under certain circumstances was equated to the crime of genocide. Adama, you have been a UN advisor to prevent genocide for many years, and you were based at some point in New York. What are the main actions today that you could highlight to prevent genocide? Well, let's start by saying that preventing genocide is a never-ending job aiming at long-term impact. And we may feel sometimes, of course, that this step-by-step approach is not making any progress. But we have reached unprecedented landmark decision uh, when it comes to the recognition of sexual gender-based violence and the conviction of sexual gender-based perpetrators. We have always to remember that the root causes leading to genocide, mass atrocities, crimes against humanities are very often identified uh, via triggering signs we can single out. I mean, we, we advance, of course, every day on that path uh, with the uh, responsibility to protect. We have been working hand in hand uh, with all the colleagues in the United Nations system uh, to mobilize international community. Every time there are enough warning signs showing a potential genocide against specific communities uh, could be on the way. Uh, that was, for instance, the case uh, in, uh, in uh, Iraq at the time the... Uh, uh, Daesh, these uh, Islamic states, were trying to uh, attack Sinjar. I warn it, but uh, the international community didn't hear. The same also with Myanmar. So, so, so this is to say that uh, we need to invest more in prevention. Another important aspect, of course, uh, the UN has been uh, uh, developing as a lesson learned is the digital technology as an instrument which allows uh, to archive beyond reasonable doubts the crimes taking place. I mean, uh, we have uh, satellite imagery which can also offer indisputable evidence of systematic scorched earth policies against communities. And uh, the tools of prevention, of course, are constantly uh, redesigned to embrace new technology instrumental uh, in terms of evidence uh, to see justice being done. In our global world today, not one perpetrator is safe, but this is not enough. 
And I think the political will from the United Nations member states to concretely act against genocide is critical. And the current United Nations structure uh, presents us with a challenge as the permanent member of the UN Security Council hold in their hands the power to decide whether the international community will intervene or not. And while the UN role is undeniable and necessary at a global level, uh, the prevention of genocide is a task for every actor, the government, the private, the civil society sectors, all have to be involved in prevention. And because uh, the crime of genocide is the crime of the crime, the crime against humanity, therefore the crimes which each individual also uh, share the responsibility. I think you're right when you say it is an endless job and it requires, of course, the involvement of everybody at every level, like you just mentioned. Now, just to wrap up, recently, you were appointed by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Mr. Karim Han, as a special advisor. Will your work be on genocide prevention there? Absolutely, absolutely. And I am glad that you made a reference to the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Of course, I fought very hard in the 90s when I was head of the International Commission of Jews in Geneva. Uh, I brought, in fact, the issue before the Vienna Congress uh, uh, on Human Rights. And that's where the first reference was put in the Vienna Declaration in Time of Action. A very timid reference, I should say, following a meeting I convened earlier uh, on no to impunity, yes to justice. So, which means that ultimately the ICC is a court of last resort. The ICC is only seen when the state where the crimes have been committed is not willing or not having the means uh, to uh, prosecute. And uh, I'm glad that uh, the new prosecutor, not only he has uh, uh, a special advisor on gender-based violence, uh, on violence commit, uh, committed uh, during, uh, which fall within the jurisdiction of the ICC. And one of the best experts, I should say, is uh, his special advisor. But he will definitely, of course, uh, as a new prosecutor, he will have to go uh, through uh, prioritization of the situations. And I can, without any hesitation, say that uh, gen sexual gender-based violence, sexual crimes, will be among his priorities. Well, thank you very much for your answers and especially for your time, Adama. We know that you're quite busy, but it was a great conversation and I know we could go endlessly speaking about this subject. Thank you very much for your time today. You are most welcome. But if you allow me, I would simply say that uh, it is important after the, uh, the failure of the the Tutsi people in Rwanda, the failure of the Muslim in Srebrenica, the failure of the Rohingya in Myanmar, that we understand that genocide not only affects the communities primarily targeted, but it affects every one of us as individuals, as we are part of humanity. And I should add that the shock 
wave of genocide and crimes against humanity is limitless. I mean, the rights after the aftermath of a genocide, the immediate urgency is to bring back peace to heal communities and allow them uh, to live together again. But tackling the root causes of hatred between communities that are deeply ingrained in sentinel bias and discrimination is a gigantic mission. And genocide causes trauma and physical and mental harm that are not limited to the survivors. The whole societies are affected in the long term and transgenerational trauma is a reality. Genocide is the crime of the crimes and let's hope that really uh, no effort will be spared. Thank you again for your time. This was a special spin-off episode of Cry Like a Boy. I'm your host, Mampeya Jiao. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about Adama Jian and the initiatives put in place to help prevent genocide, feel free to visit the United Nations website. Listen to Cry Like a Boy on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please help us spread the word. Give us a five-star rating or leave a comment. Follow us on Twitter at Euronews is our Twitter handle. And we are at Euronews.tv on Instagram. Share with us your own stories of how you changed and challenged your view on what it means to be a man using the hashtag CryLikeABoy. This podcast is also available in French, on la tête des hommes. For more information on Cry Like a Boy, Go to euronews.com to find opinion pieces, videos, and articles on the topic. This show was produced by me, Mampeya Jao, Naira Davlashian, and Marta Rodriguez-Martinez. Music by Gabriel Dalmaso.